0: Chapter 4. Nature and Supernature Throughout the long tradition of European thought, it has been said, not by everyone, but by most people, or at any rate by most of those who have proved that they have a right to be heard, that nature, though it is a thing that really exists, is not a thing that exists in itself or in its own right, but a thing which depends for its existence upon something else. R.G. Collingwood, The Idea of Nature If our argument has been sound, rational thought or reason is not interlocked with the great interlocking system of irrational events which we call nature. I am not maintaining that consciousness as a whole must necessarily be put in the same position. Pleasures, pains, fears, hopes, affections, and mental images need not. No absurdity would follow from regarding them as parts of nature. The distinction we have to make is not one between mind and matter, much less between soul and body, hard words, all four of them, but between reason and nature. The frontier coming not where the outer world ends and what I should ordinarily call myself begins, but between reason and the whole mass of irrational events, whether physical or psychological. At that frontier we find a great deal of traffic, but it is all one-way traffic. It is a matter of daily experience that rational thoughts induce and enable us to alter the course of nature. Of physical nature, when we use mathematics to build bridges, or of psychological nature, when we apply arguments to alter our own emotions. We succeed in modifying physical nature more often and more completely than we succeed in modifying psychological nature, but we do at least a little to both. On the other hand, nature is quite powerless to produce rational thought. Not that she never modifies our thinking, but that the moment she does so, it ceases, for that very reason, to be rational. For as we have seen, a train of thought loses all rational credentials as soon as it can be shown to be wholly the result of irrational causes. When nature, so to speak, attempts to do things to rational thoughts, she only succeeds in killing them. That is the peculiar state of affairs at the frontier. Nature can only raid reason to kill, but reason can invade nature to take prisoners and even to colonize. Every object you see before you at this moment, the walls, ceiling, and furniture, the book, your own washed hands and cut fingernails, bears witness to the colonization of nature by reason. For none of this matter would have been in these states if nature had had her way. And if you are attending to my argument as closely as I hope, that attention also results from habits which reason has imposed on the natural ramblings of consciousness. If, on the other hand, a toothache or an anxiety is at this very moment preventing you from attending, then nature is indeed interfering with your consciousness. But not to produce some new variety of reasoning— only, as far as in her lies, to suspend reason altogether. In other words, the relation between reason and nature is what some people call an unsymmetrical relation. Brotherhood is a symmetrical relation because if A is the brother of B, B is the brother of A. Father and son is an unsymmetrical relation because if A is the father of B, B is not the father of A. The relation between reason and nature is of this kind. Reason is not related to nature, as nature is related to reason. I am only too well aware how shocking those who have been brought up to naturalism will find the picture which begins to show itself. It is, frankly, a picture in which nature, at any rate on the surface of our own planet, is perforated or pockmarked all over by little orifices at each of which something of a different kind from herself, namely a reason, can do things to her. I can only beg you, before you throw the book away, to consider seriously whether your instinctive repugnance to such a conception is really rational, or whether it is only emotional or aesthetic. I know that the hankering for a universe which is all of a piece, and in which everything is the same sort of thing as everything else, a continuity, a seamless web, a democratic universe, is very deep-seated in the modern heart, in mine no less than in yours. But have we any real assurance that things are like that? Are we mistaking for an intrinsic probability what is really a human desire for tidiness and harmony? Bacon warned us long ago that the human understanding is of its own nature prone to suppose the existence of more order and regularity in the world than it finds, and though there be many things which are singular and unmatched, yet it devises for them parallels and conjugates and relatives which do not exist, hence the fiction that all celestial bodies move in perfect circles. I think Bacon was right. Science itself has already made reality appear less homogeneous than we expected it to be. Newtonian atomism was much more the sort of thing we expected and desired than quantum physics. If you can, even for the moment, endure the suggested picture of nature, let us now consider the other factor, the reasons or instances of reason which attack her. We have seen that rational thought is not part of the system of nature. Within each man there must be an area, however small, of activity which is outside or independent of her. In relation to nature, rational thought goes on of its own accord or exists on its own, It does not follow that rational thought exists absolutely on its own it might be independent of nature by being dependent on something else for it is not dependent simply but dependence on the irrational which undermines the credentials of thought one step in an argument depends on the previous step and is all the better for doing so one man's reason has been led to see things by the aid of another man's reason and is none the worse for that it is thus still an open question whether each man's reason exists absolutely on its own or whether it is the result of some rational cause, in fact of some other reason. That other reason might conceivably be found to depend on a third, and so on. It would not matter how far this process was carried, provided you found reason coming from reason at each stage. It is only when you are asked to believe in reason coming from non-reason that you must cry halt, for if you don't, all thought is discredited. It is therefore obvious that sooner or later you must admit a reason which exists absolutely on its own. The problem is whether you or I can be such a self-existent reason. This question almost answers itself the moment we remember what existence on one's own means. It means that kind of existence which naturalists attribute to the whole show and supernaturalists attribute to God. For instance, what exists on its own must have existed from all eternity, for if anything else could make it begin to exist, then it would not exist on its own, but because of something else. It must also exist incessantly, That is, it cannot cease to exist and then begin again. For having once ceased to be, it obviously could not recall itself to existence. And if anything else recalled it, it would then be a dependent being. Now it is clear that my reason has grown up gradually since my birth and is interrupted for several hours each night. I therefore cannot be that eternal self-existent reason which neither slumbers nor sleeps. Yet if any thought is valid, such a reason must exist and must be the source of my own imperfect and intermittent rationality. Human minds, then, are not the only supernatural entities that exist. They do not come from nowhere. Each has come into nature from supernature. Each has its taproot in an eternal, self-existent, rational being whom we call God. Each is an offshoot, or spearhead, or incursion of that supernatural reality into nature. Some people may here raise the following question. If reason is sometimes present in my mind, and sometimes not, then, instead of saying that I am a product of eternal reason— Would it not be wiser to say simply that eternal reason itself occasionally works through my organism, leaving me a merely natural being? A wire does not become something other than a wire because an electric current has passed through it. But to talk thus is, in my opinion, to forget what reasoning is like. It is not an object which knocks against us, nor even a sensation which we feel. Reasoning doesn't happen to us. We do it. Every train of thought is accompanied by what Kant called the I think- The traditional doctrine that I am a creature to whom God has given reason, but who is distinct from God, seems to me much more philosophical than the theory that what appears to be my thinking is only God's thinking through me. On the latter view, it is very difficult to explain what happens when I think correctly, but reach a false conclusion because I have been misinformed about facts. Why God, who presumably knows the real facts, should be at the pains to think one of his perfectly rational thoughts through a mind in which it is bound to produce error, I do not understand. Nor indeed do I understand why if all my valid thinking is really God's, he should either himself mistake it for mine, or cause me to mistake it for mine. It seems much more likely that human thought is not God's, but God-kindled. I must hasten, however, to add that this is a book about miracles, not about everything. I am attempting no full doctrine of man, and I am not in the least trying to smuggle in an argument for the immortality of the soul. The earliest Christian documents give a casual and unemphatic assent to the belief that the supernatural part of a man survives the death of the natural organism, but they are very little interested in the matter. What they are intensely interested in is the restoration or resurrection of the whole composite creature by a miraculous divine act, and until we have come to some conclusion about miracles in general, we shall certainly not discuss that. At this stage, the supernatural element in man concerns us solely as evidence that something beyond nature exists. The dignity and destiny of man have, at present, nothing to do with the argument. We are interested in man only because his rationality is the little tell-tale rift in nature which shows that there is something beyond or behind her. In a pond whose surface was completely covered with scum and floating vegetation, there might be a few water lilies, and you might of course be interested in them for their beauty. But you might also be interested in them because from their structure you could deduce that they had stalks underneath which went down to roots in the bottom. The naturalist thinks that the pond, nature, the great event in space-time, is of an infinite depth, that there is nothing but water, however far you go down. My claim is that some of the things on the surface, that is, in our experience, show the contrary. These things, rational minds, reveal, on inspection, that they at least are not floating, but attached by stalks to the bottom. Therefore the pond has a bottom. It is not pond, pond forever. Go deep enough, and you will come to something that is not pond, to mud and earth, and then to rock, and finally the whole bulk of earth and the subterranean fire. At this point, it is tempting to try whether naturalism cannot still be saved. I pointed out in chapter 2 that one could remain a naturalist and yet believe in a certain kind of God, a cosmic consciousness to which the whole show somehow gave rise, what we might call an emergent God. Would not an emergent God give us all we need? Is it really necessary to bring in a supernatural God, distinct from and outside the whole interlocked system? Notice, modern reader, how your spirits rise, how much more at home you would feel with an emergent than with a transcendent God, How much less primitive, repugnant, and naive the emergent conception seems to you, for by that, as you will see later, there hangs a tale. But I am afraid it will not do. It is, of course, possible to suppose that when all the atoms of the universe got into a certain relation, which they were bound to get into sooner or later, they would give rise to a universal consciousness, and it might have thoughts, and it might cause those thoughts to pass through our minds. But unfortunately, its own thoughts, on this supposition, would be the product of irrational causes and therefore by the rule which we use daily, they would have no validity. This cosmic mind would be, just as much as our own minds, the product of mindless nature. We have not escaped from the difficulty, we have only put it a stage further back. The cosmic mind will help us only if we put it at the beginning, if we suppose it to be, not the product of the total system, but the basic, original, self-existent fact which exists in its own right. But to admit that sort of cosmic mind is to admit a god outside nature, a transcendent and supernatural God. This route, which looked like offering an escape, really leads us round again to the place we started from. There is, then, a God who is not a part of nature, but nothing has yet been said to show that he must have created her. Might God and nature be both self-existent and totally independent of each other? If you thought they were, you would be a dualist and would hold a view which I consider manlier and more reasonable than any form of naturalism. You might be many worse things than a dualist, but I do not think dualism is true. There is an enormous difficulty in conceiving two things which simply coexist and have no other relation. If this difficulty sometimes escapes our notice, that is because we are the victims of picture thinking. We really imagine them side by side in some kind of space. But of course, if they were both in a common space, or a common time, or in any kind of common medium, whatever, they would both be parts of a system, in fact, of a nature. Even if we succeed in eliminating such pictures, the mere fact of our trying to think of them together slurs over the real difficulty because, for that moment anyway, our own mind is the common medium. If there can be such a thing as sheer otherness, if things can coexist and no more, it is at any rate a conception which my mind cannot form, and in the present instance it seems specially gratuitous to try to form it, for we already know that God and nature have come into a certain relation." they have at the very least a relation, almost in one sense, a common frontier, in every human mind. The relations which arise at that frontier are indeed of a most complicated and intimate sort. That spearhead of the supernatural which I call my reason links up with all my natural contents, my sensations, emotions, and the like, so completely that I call the mixture by the single word, me. Again, there is what I have called the unsymmetrical character of the frontier relations. When the physical state of the brain dominates my thinking, it produces only disorder, but my brain does not become any less a brain when it is dominated by reason. Nor do my emotions and sensations become any the less emotions and sensations. Reason saves and strengthens my whole system, psychological and physical, whereas that whole system, by rebelling against reason, destroys both reason and itself. The military metaphor of a spearhead was apparently ill-chosen. The supernatural reason enters my natural being not like a weapon, more like a beam of light which illuminates, or a principle of organization which unifies and develops. Our whole picture of nature being invaded, as if by a foreign enemy, was wrong. When we actually examine one of these invasions, it looks much more like the arrival of a king among his own subjects, or a mahout visiting his own elephant. The elephant may run amok, nature may be rebellious. But from observing what happens when nature obeys, it is almost impossible not to conclude that it is her very nature to be a subject. All happens as if she had been designed for that very role. To believe that nature produced God, or even the human mind, is, as we have seen, absurd. To believe that the two are both independently self-existent is impossible, at least the attempt to do so leaves me unable to say that I am thinking of anything at all. It is true that dualism has a certain theological attraction. It seems to make the problem of evil easier. But if we cannot, in fact, think dualism out to the end, this attractive promise can never be kept, and I think there are better solutions of the problem of evil there remains then the belief that God created nature. This at once supplies a relation between them and gets rid of the difficulty of sheer otherness. This also fits in with the observed frontier situation, in which everything looks as if nature were not resisting an alien invader, but rebelling against a lawful sovereign. This, and perhaps this alone, fits in with the fact that nature, though not apparently intelligent, is intelligible, that events in the remotest parts of space appear to obey the laws of rational thought. Even the act of creation itself presents none of the intolerable difficulties which seem to meet us on every other hypothesis. There is in our own human mind something that bears a faint resemblance to it. We can imagine, that is, we can cause to exist the mental pictures of material objects and even human characters and events. We fall short of creation in two ways. In the first place, we can only recombine elements borrowed from the real universe. No one can imagine a new primary color or a sixth sense. In the second place, what we imagine exists only for our own consciousness, though we can, by words, induce other people to build for themselves pictures in their own minds which may be roughly similar to it. We should have to attribute to God the power both of producing the basic elements, of inventing not only colors but color itself, the senses themselves, space, time, and matter themselves, and also of imposing what he has invented on created minds. This seems to me no intolerable assumption. It is certainly easier than the idea of God and nature as wholly unrelated entities, and far easier than the idea of nature producing valid thought. I do not maintain that God's creation of nature can be proved as rigorously as God's existence, but it seems to me overwhelmingly probable, so probable that no one who approached the question with an open mind would very seriously entertain any other hypothesis. In fact, one seldom meets people who have grasped the existence of a supernatural God and yet deny that he is the creator. All the evidence we have points in that direction, and difficulties spring up on every side if we try to believe otherwise. No philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis that, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. I say radical improvement because the story in Genesis, as St. Jerome said long ago, is told in the manner of a popular poet, or as we should say, in the form of folktale. But if you compare it with the creation legends of other peoples, with all these delightful absurdities in which giants to be cut up and floods to be dried up are made to exist before creation, the depth and originality of this Hebrew folktale will soon be apparent. The idea of creation, in the rigorous sense of the word, is there fully grasped. Chapter 5. A Further Difficulty in Naturalism Even as rigorous a determinist as Karl Marx, who at times described the social behavior of the bourgeoisie in terms which suggested a problem in social physics, could subject it at other times to a withering scorn which only the presupposition of moral responsibility could justify. Reinhold Niebuhr, An Interpretation of Christian Ethics Some people regard logical thinking as the deadest and driest of our activities, and may therefore be repelled by the privileged position I gave it in the last chapter. But logical thinking, reasoning, had to be the pivot of the argument, because, of all the claims which the human mind puts forward, the claim of reasoning to be valid is the only one which the naturalist cannot deny without, philosophically speaking, cutting his own throat. You cannot, as we saw, prove that there are no proofs but you can, if you wish, regard all human ideals as illusions and all human loves as biological byproducts. That is, you can do so without running into flat self-contradiction and nonsense. Whether you can do so without extreme unplausibility, without accepting a picture of things which no one really believes, is another matter. Besides reasoning about matters of fact, men also make moral judgments. I ought to do this, I ought not to do that, this is good, that is evil. Two views have been held about moral judgments, Some people think that when we make them, we are not using our reason, but are employing some different power. Other people think that we make them by our reason. I myself hold this second view. That is, I believe that the primary moral principles on which all others depend are rationally perceived. We just see that there is no reason why my neighbor's happiness should be sacrificed to my own, as we just see that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. If we cannot prove either axiom, that is not because they are irrational, but because they are self-evident, and all proofs depend on them. Their intrinsic reasonableness shines by its own light. It is because all morality is based on such self-evident principles that we say to a man, when we would recall him to right conduct, be reasonable. But this is by the way. For our present purpose, it does not matter which of these two views you adopt. The important point is to notice that moral judgments raise the same sort of difficulty for naturalism as any other thoughts. We always assume in discussions about morality, as in all other discussions, that the other man's views are worthless if they can be fully accounted for by some non-moral and non-rational cause. When two men differ about good and evil, we soon hear this principle being brought into play. He believes in the sanctity of property because he's a millionaire. He believes in pacifism because he's a coward. He approves of corporal punishment because he is a sadist. Such taunts may often be untrue, but the mere fact that they are made by the one side and hotly rebutted by the other shows clearly what principle is being used. Neither side doubts that if they were true, they would be decisive. No one in real life pays attention to any moral judgment which can be shown to spring from non-moral and non-rational causes. The Freudian and the Marxist attack traditional morality precisely on this ground, and with wide success. All men accept the principle. But of course, what discredits particular moral judgments must equally discredit moral judgment as a whole. If the fact that men have such ideas as ought and ought not at all can be fully explained by irrational and non-moral causes, then those ideas are an illusion. The naturalist is ready to explain how the illusion arose. Chemical conditions produce life. Life under the influence of natural selection produces consciousness. Conscious organisms, which behave in one way, live longer than those which behave in another. Living longer, they are more likely to have offspring. Inheritance and sometimes teaching as well pass on their mode of behavior to the young. Thus, in every species, a pattern of behavior is built up. In the human species, conscious teaching plays a larger part in building it up, and the tribe further strengthens it by killing individuals who don't conform. They also invent gods who are said to punish departures from it. Thus, in time, there comes to exist a strong human impulse to conform. But since this impulse is often at variance with the other impulses, a mental conflict arises, and the man expresses it by saying, I want to do A, but I ought to do B. This account may, or may not, explain why men do in fact make moral judgments it does not explain how they could be right in making them. It excludes, indeed, the very possibility of their being right. For when men say, I ought, they certainly think they are saying something, and something true, about the nature of the proposed action, and not merely about their own feelings. But if naturalism is true, I ought is the same sort of statement as, I itch, or I'm going to be sick. In real life, when a man says, I ought, we may reply, yes, you're right, that is what you ought to do, or else, no, I think you're mistaken. But in a world of naturalists, if naturalists really remembered their philosophy out of school, the only sensible reply would be, oh, are you? All moral judgments would be statements about the speaker's feelings, mistaken by him for statements about something else, the real moral quality of his actions, which does not exist. Such a doctrine, I have admitted, is not flatly self-contradictory. The naturalist can, if he chooses, brazen it out. He can say, yes, I quite agree that there is no such thing as wrong and right. I admit that no moral judgment can be true or correct, and, consequently, that no one system of morality can be better or worse than another. All ideas of good and evil are hallucinations, shadows cast on the outer world by the impulses which we have been conditioned to feel. Indeed, many naturalists are delighted to say this. But then they must stick to it. And fortunately, though inconsistently, most real naturalists do not. A moment after they have admitted that good and evil are illusions, you will find them exhorting us to work for posterity, to educate, revolutionize, liquidate, live and die for the good of the human race. A naturalist like Mr. H.G. Wells has spent a long life doing so with passionate eloquence and zeal. But surely this is very odd. Just as all the books about spiral nebulae, atoms, and cavemen would really have led you to suppose that the naturalists claimed to be able to know something, so all the books in which naturalists tell us what we ought to do would really make you believe that they thought some ideas of good, their own, for example, to be somehow preferable to others. For they write with indignation like men proclaiming what is good in itself and denouncing what is evil in itself, and not at all like men recording that they personally like mild beer, but some people prefer bitter. Yet if the oughts of Mr. Wells and, say, Franco are both equally the impulses which nature has conditioned each to have and both tell us nothing about any objective right or wrong, whence is all the fervor? Do they remember while they are writing thus that when they tell us we ought to make a better world, The words ought and better must, on their own showing, refer to an irrationally conditioned impulse, which cannot be true or false, any more than a vomit or a yawn. My idea is that sometimes they do forget. That is their glory. Holding a philosophy which excludes humanity, they yet remain human. At the sight of injustice, they throw all their naturalism to the winds and speak like men and like men of genius. They know far better than they think they know. But at other times, I suspect, they are trusting in a supposed way of escape from their difficulty it works or seems to work like this. They say to themselves, ah yes, morality, or bourgeois morality, or conventional morality, or traditional morality, or some such addition. Morality is an illusion, but we have found out what modes of behavior will in fact preserve the human race alive. That is the behavior we are pressing you to adopt. Pray don't mistake us for moralists. We are under an entirely new management. Just as if this would help. It would help only if we grant, firstly, that life is better than death, and, secondly, that we ought to care for the lives of our descendants as much as or more than for our own. And both these are moral judgments which have, like all others, been explained away by naturalism. Of course, having been conditioned by nature in a certain way, we do feel thus about life and about posterity. But the naturalists have cured us of mistaking these feelings for insights into what we once called real value. Now that I know that my impulse to serve posterity is just the same kind of thing as my fondness for cheese, Now that its transcendental pretensions have been exposed for a sham, do you think I shall pay much attention to it? When it happens to be strong, and it has grown considerably weaker since you explained to me its real nature, I suppose I shall obey it. When it is weak, I shall put my money into cheese. There can be no reason for trying to whip up and encourage the one impulse rather than the other, not now that I know what they both are. The naturalists must not destroy all my reverence for conscience on Monday and expect to find me still venerating it on Tuesday. There is no escape along those lines. If we are to continue to make moral judgments, and whatever we say we shall in fact continue, then we must believe that the conscience of man is not a product of nature. It can be valid only if it is an offshoot of some absolute moral wisdom, a moral wisdom which exists absolutely on its own, and is not a product of non-moral, non-rational nature. As the argument of the last chapter led us to acknowledge a supernatural source for rational thought, so the argument of this leads us to acknowledge a supernatural source for our ideas of good and evil. In other words, we now know something more about God. If you hold that moral judgment is a different thing from reasoning, you will express this new knowledge by saying, we now know that God has at least one other attribute than rationality. If, like me, you hold that moral judgment is a kind of reasoning, then you will say, we now know more about the divine reason. And with this, we are almost ready to begin our main argument. But before doing so, it will be well to pause for the consideration of some misgivings or misunderstandings which may have already arisen. Chapter 6 Answers to Misgivings For as bats' eyes are to daylight, so is our intellectual eye to those truths which are, in their own nature, the most obvious of all. Aristotle, Metaphysics It must be clearly understood that the argument so far leads to no conception of souls or spirits, words I have avoided, floating about in the realm of nature with no relation to their environment. Hence we do not deny, indeed we must welcome, certain considerations which are often regarded as proofs of naturalism. We can admit, and even insist, that rational thinking can be shown to be conditioned in its exercise by a natural object, the brain. It is temporarily impaired by alcohol or a blow on the head. It wanes as the brain decays and vanishes when the brain ceases to function. In the same way, the moral outlook of a community can be shown to be closely connected with its history, geographical environment, economic structure, and so forth. The moral ideas of the individual are equally related to his general situation. It is no accident that parents and schoolmasters so often tell us that they can stand any vice rather than lying, the lie being the only defensive weapon of the child. All this, far from presenting us with a difficulty, is exactly what we should expect. The rational and moral element in each human mind is a point of force from the supernatural working its way into nature, exploiting at each point those conditions which nature offers, repulsed where the conditions are hopeless and impeded when they are unfavorable. A man's rational thinking is just so much of his share in eternal reason as the state of his brain allows to become operative. It represents, so to speak, the bargain struck or the frontier fixed between reason and nature at that particular point. A nation's moral outlook is just so much of its share in the eternal moral wisdom as its history, economics, etc. lets through. In the same way, the voice of the announcer is just so much of a human voice as the receiving set lets through. Of course, it varies with the state of the receiving set and deteriorates as the set wears out and vanishes altogether if I throw a brick at it. It is conditioned by the apparatus, but not originated by it. If it were, if we knew that there was no human being at the microphone, we should not attend to the news. The various and complex conditions under which reason and morality appear are the twists and turns of the frontier between nature and supernature. That is why, if you wish, you can always ignore supernature and treat the phenomena purely from the natural side, Just as a man studying on a map the boundaries of Cornwall and Devonshire can always say, what you call a bulge in Devonshire is really a dent in Cornwall. And in a sense, you can't refute him. What we call a bulge in Devonshire always is a dent in Cornwall. What we call rational thought in a man always involves a state of the brain, in the long run, a relation of atoms. But Devonshire is nonetheless something more than where Cornwall ends, and reason is something more than cerebral biochemistry. I now turn to another possible misgiving. To some people, the great trouble about any argument for the supernatural is simply the fact that argument should be needed at all. If so stupendous a thing exists, ought it not to be obvious as the sun in the sky? Is it not intolerable, and indeed incredible, that knowledge of the most basic of all facts should be accessible only by wire-drawn reasonings for which the vast majority of men have neither leisure nor capacity? I have great sympathy with this point of view, but we must notice two things. When you are looking at a garden from a room upstairs, it is obvious, once you think about it, that you are looking through a window. But if it is the garden that interests you, you may look at it for a long time without thinking of the window. When you are reading a book, it is obvious, once you attend to it, that you are using your eyes. But unless your eyes begin to hurt you, or the book is a textbook on optics, you may read all evening without once thinking of eyes. When we talk, we are obviously using language and grammar. And when we try to talk a foreign language, we may be painfully aware of the fact But when we are talking English, we don't notice it. When you shout from the top of the stairs, I'm coming in half a moment, you are not usually conscious that you have made the singular am agree with the singular I. There is indeed a story told about a redskin who, having learned several other languages, was asked to write a grammar of the language used by his own tribe. He replied, after some thought, that it had no grammar. The grammar he had used all his life had escaped his notice all his life. He knew it, in one sense, so well that, in another sense, he did not know it existed. All these instances show that the fact which is in one respect the most obvious and primary fact and through which alone you have access to all the other facts may be precisely the one that is most easily forgotten. Forgotten not because it is so remote or abstruse, but because it is so near and so obvious. And that is exactly how the supernatural has been forgotten. The naturalists have been engaged in thinking about nature. They have not attended to the fact that they were thinking. The moment one attends to this, it is obvious that one's own thinking cannot be merely a natural event, and that therefore something other than nature exists. The supernatural is not remote and abstruse. It is a matter of daily and hourly experience, as intimate as breathing. Denial of it depends on a certain absent-mindedness. But this absent-mindedness is in no way surprising. You do not need, indeed you do not wish, to be always thinking about windows when you are looking at gardens, or always thinking about eyes when you are reading. In the same way, the proper procedure for all limited and particular inquiries is to ignore the fact of your own thinking and concentrate on the object. It is only when you stand back from particular inquiries and try to form a complete philosophy that you must take it into account, for a complete philosophy must get in all the facts. In it, you turn away from specialized or truncated thought to total thought, and one of the facts total thought must think about is thinking itself. There is thus a tendency in the study of nature to make us forget the most obvious fact of all. And since the 16th century, the minds of men have been increasingly turned outward, to know nature and to master her. They have been increasingly engaged on those specialized inquiries for which truncated thought is the correct method. It is therefore not in the least astonishing that they should have forgotten the evidence for the supernatural. The deeply ingrained habit of truncated thought, what we call the scientific habit of mind, was indeed certain to lead to naturalism, unless this tendency were continually corrected from some other source. But no other source was at hand, for during the same period, men of science were coming to be metaphysically and theologically uneducated. That brings me to the second consideration. The state of affairs in which ordinary people can discover the supernatural only by abstruse reasoning is recent and, by historical standards, abnormal. All over the world, until quite modern times, the direct insight of the mystics and the reasonings of the philosophers percolated to the mass of the people by authority and tradition. They could be received by those who were no great reasoners themselves in the concrete form of myth and ritual and the whole pattern of life. In the conditions produced by a century or so of naturalism, Plain men are being forced to bear burdens which plain men were never expected to bear before. We must get the truth for ourselves, or go without it. There may be two explanations for this. It might be that humanity, in rebelling against tradition and authority, have made a ghastly mistake, a mistake which will not be the less fatal because the corruptions of those in authority rendered it very excusable. On the other hand, it may be that the power which rules our species is at this moment carrying out a daring experiment. Could it be intended that the whole mass of the people should now move forward and occupy for themselves those heights which were once reserved only for the sages? Is the distinction between wise and simple to disappear because all are now expected to become wise? If so, our present blunderings would be but growing pains. But let us make no mistake about our necessities. If we are content to go back and become humble plain men obeying a tradition, well, if we are ready to climb and struggle on till we become sages ourselves, better still. But the man who will neither obey wisdom in others nor adventure for her himself is fatal. A society where the simple many obey the few seers can live. A society where all were seers could live even more fully. But a society where the mass is still simple and the seers are no longer attended to can achieve only superficiality, baseness, ugliness, and in the end, extinction. On or back we must go. To stay here is death. One other point that may have raised doubt or difficulty should here be dealt with. I have advanced reasons for believing that a supernatural element is present in every rational man. The presence of human rationality in the world is therefore a miracle by the definition given in chapter 2. On realizing this, the reader may excusably say, Oh, if that's all he means by a miracle, and fling the book away. But I ask him to have patience. Human reason and morality have been mentioned not as instances of miracle, at least not of the kind of miracle you wanted to hear about, but as proofs of the supernatural not in order to show that nature ever is invaded, but that there is a possible invader. Whether you choose to call the regular and familiar invasion by human reason a miracle or not is largely a matter of words. Its regularity, the fact that it regularly enters by the same door, human sexual intercourse, may incline you not to do so. It looks as if it were, so to speak, the very nature of nature to suffer this invasion. But then we might later find that it was the very nature of nature to suffer miracles in general. Fortunately, the course of our argument will allow us to leave this question of terminology on one side. We are going to be concerned with other invasions of nature, with what everyone would call miracles. Our question could, if you liked, be put in the form, does supernature ever produce particular results in space and time except through the instrumentality of human brains acting on human nerves and muscles? I have said particular results because, on our view, nature as a whole is herself one huge result of the supernatural. God created her. God pierces her wherever there is a human mind. God presumably maintains her in existence. The question is whether he ever does anything else to her. Does he, besides all this, ever introduce into her events of which it would not be true to say, this is simply the working out of the general character which he gave to nature as a whole in creating her. Such events are what are popularly called miracles, and it will be in this sense only that the word miracle will be used for the rest of the book.